Now, that wasn't scolding. That's coming up. Okay, here we go. Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29. Can we hit that roll of lights right there, please? Thank you. Now, let me ask you a couple of quick questions here. First of all, how many of you remember, without, without your, your uh, show of hands, without the show of hands, just, just think about the question. How many of you remember the day that you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? The day that your eyes were open, your hearts were open, and Christ came into your life. How many of you remember? You remember that? Just think about that. It, it's hard not to remember. Because it was on that day that you were radically changed. And the other question is, how many of you remember where you were saved? You remember that? You remember where? I can remember. I mean, it, it was 40-some years ago for me, but I remember. There are some things I don't remember from this week, but I remember that. I don't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, but I remember where I got saved. I remember... When I got saved it was so significant. I can still see it. I, I even remember what I was wearing. and uh, The only thing I don't remember was the name of the guy that led me to the Lord. But, but I do remember one thing. Uh, he was a hippie with a big long beard and he had an army jacket on. And I think I did too. But I remember that. Do you think that Jacob <clears throat> would, would ever forget Bethel? Would he ever forget the house of God, the place that was just a certain place for a moment, but then when he was uh, asleep uh, with his head on that stone and he, and he saw the stairway or the, or the ladder with the angels ascending and descending upon it and God standing at the top, that, that, that he, would he ever forget that place? where he realized the access that there was to God and that the stairway itself was in fact Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And Jacob came to know God that day. He wouldn't forget it. But what happens to us after that? It really makes a difference. To know where we are headed and where we're going and where we're going to stand with the God the rest of our lives. And so after his great conversion and things have happened in his life that have changed him radically, there's always a chapter 29. <laughs> so Jacob, it says. And remember, he's away from his home. He's, he's left his home and he's only traveled about oh, 50 to 70 miles away from his home. And he still has another 500 miles or maybe 400 plus miles to go. But now things are changed. And so Jacob went on his journey and he came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked. And he saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. And now all the flocks would be gathered there. And they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. 
And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. So he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with a sheep. And then he said, Look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. And now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, and then Jacob went near and rolled a stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Boy, there has to be a way to cut that verse down a little bit. That's a long one. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. And so she ran and she told her father. And then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. So, Jacob's life was radically and drastically transformed in Bethel, the house of God. That place that he named the house of God, because there he saw God. There he saw the way to God, the way to the kingdom of God, the way to a life with God. He saw it. At one time, this man whose passion was all about greed and getting, he had his heart so transformed to the extent that now his passion was about giving. Because if you remember at the end of chapter 20, uh, 28, he, he made a vow to the Lord. And he talks about giving to the Lord the tenth, the tithe. Before that, Jacob was all about himself. But now his heart is open to giving. Did you, did you discover that when you became a believer in Jesus Christ? That, uh, you know, we, we, we realize how selfish we are, sometimes how, how self-focused we are. But then we come to the Lord and then all of a sudden all we want to do is give everybody, you know. We want to give them hugs and we, gotta, you know, we want to give them, uh, uh, you know, if they need help, we just want to give it to them. We want to give them Bibles and we want to give them literature and we want to give them tracts. And we want to give, because it's inside of us now. We're changed, we see. We're more like Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? He came to give more than to take or to receive. That vow was twofold. The vow that, that Jacob gave to the Lord, it was twofold. The first thing that we need to remember about that, that vow is that he would never forget God's place. He would never forget God's place. Don't ever forget the place where you came to the Lord. Where you really had your eyes open. Where all of a sudden you went from darkness into light. You know, it brings to mind that great, that great hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, 
but now I'm bound. Twas blind, but now I see. We were blind. God opened our eyes and our hearts. We should never forget the place, God's place, Bethel. And the other part of his, his vow was that he would never forget God's portion. He would never forget to give to God what God is due. Now we know one thing, God is due all of our life. But he would always set aside that tenth unto the Lord. It was a great start. Jacob had truly come to salvation after his encounter with the God of Abraham and Isaac. And now God was the God of Jacob as well. Now we can complete that great statement that we believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because there has to come a time where we have to make him our God. He's Abraham's God, he's Isaac's God, he's Jacob's God, and he's my God. And I hope he's your God too. And you have to know him. Now as most of us know, it is one thing for a person to be saved... But it's another thing for them to be subdued. To be subdued. Now what do I mean by that? I mean, where does that word fit into all of this? Well, let's look at that word subdue for just a moment. Because the classic definition for the word subdue is to overcome and to bring under control. To overcome and to bring under control. You know, before we came to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, most of us, most of us, at one time, maybe we were under the control of very strong parents or whatever. But we wanted to get out from under that control because we wanted to be in control ourselves, didn't we? Right? We want control. What we find out, though, is that the more we're in control, the more we get out of control. And how about this? How about the testimony that we have about being out of control? Man, I've heard testimony upon testimony about one person saying, Yeah, man, I was into this drug and I was into that kind of thing and I was into doing this and I was into doing all of these things until the Lord found me and he saved me see because we think we're good at being in control but we're not because in the flesh all we can do is get out of control Jacob was out of control Esau was out of control but Jacob was subdued by God And now he was under the control of the Lord. We call that being under the subjection of the Holy Spirit or being under the submission of the Holy Spirit. But you know, when we're under the submission of someone, you know, sometimes we think, well, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? No, not with God. Because our God is a God of love. Our God is a God of mercy and a God of grace and a God of truth. And while sometimes he is a little, you know, he has to be very stern in his word about some of the things that we ought not to be doing and, and we need to be, you know, coming to grips with those things. Nonetheless, he's, he loves us back to himself. He always loves us back. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is about love. It's not, it's not about condemnation. It's about conviction. It's about bringing us back to him, you see. So then this subduing, is that not the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, sanctifying us and, uh, in us and through our walk in this world until the day of Christ? Isn't that the work of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is with us, right? When we come to the Lord, He fills us with His Spirit that we might even say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then He fills us with His Spirit so that we can walk in Him and, and, and live lives of power. 
Not our power, His power. Because we don't have much power in and of ourselves. But He has all power. We call that the, the, the process of sanctification. Every day for us as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to grow closer and closer to the Lord. We are to grow more and more in love with the Lord. We are to grow more in the, in the w- wisdom of God. We are to grow in maturity as believers in Jesus Christ. We are indeed to grow more and more into the image of Christ day by day by day. From faith to faith. From grace to grace. That's how we are to grow. And that process of sanctification and subduing for Jacob would take up the next 20 years of his life. Now, it's going to take up all of the 147 years of his life, but nonetheless, for our purposes of learning about Jacob for the next 20 years, that's what he's learning through these trials and experiences. And it's a reminder to us that we ourselves are oftentimes slow to learn even the basic rudimental truths of the life of faith. Sometimes we're very slow to learn that we can trust the Lord all the time. Right? Don't you, don't you, don't you, wouldn't you agree with me? I mean, I'm raising my hand, man, sometimes I'm just really slow at learning some of these things. We're slow. I'm reminded of the countless times that the Lord would tell His disciples, Oh, ye of little faith. And these guys were with him every day for three and a half years. Every day. And he constantly had to remind them, Oh, ye of little faith. We have a, we have a day where we have this, this wonderful worship experience. Oh, man, we just like, woohoo, you know. We're going all over the place. And then all of a sudden, boom, we face a trial or we face a tragedy or we face some some unexpected event in our life. And all of a sudden we're like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Oh, what am I going to do? How about trust the Lord? How about take the burden to the Lord? Is that what we're called to do anyway? Oh, yeah. You remember saying that in the good... Oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> oh, ye of little faith. What happened? So trusting me. But here in Jacob's new life, it's, it's beginning in a great way. Because here we see him in verse 1 of our text. Let's go to that. In verse 1 of our text... What it tells us is that he began his new life with a spring in his step and a song in his heart. And you say, where's that there? Well, let's read it. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. So Jacob went on his journey. Now, what you need to understand is that the text in the Hebrew, the text literally says that Jacob lifted up his feet. And I started thinking, you know, I used to be a band director and I used to have to teach marching to kids, you know, uh, in high school. And so, you know, you have to lift up your feet in a certain way and, you know, to march properly and together and all of that kind of stuff. And and I kept thinking, wow, can you imagine him going from Bethel all the way to Haran, marching all the way, man, just having this spring in his step now because God has promised him that he'd be with him. Well, guess what? He's promised us that he'll be with us. So he has this, this spring in his step because it says he, he went on his journey, but it, the, the English is so... Uh, it just doesn't have that, that graphic description of lifting up his feet. 
And it is a, a graphic description, as it were, of a, of a newborn pilgrim, sojourner, one who is, who is living in, you know, in a different kingdom now from where he belongs, because he belongs to the kingdom of God. But nonetheless, he's got a spring in his step. He, know God, he knows God's in control. You see, Jacob may have been dragging his feet those first 50 to 70 miles out of Beersheba. He may have been dragging his feet, carrying such heavy thoughts and heavy burdens as he tried to put miles between himself and Esau. He was probably thinking of all the stupid things he had done to his father Isaac, the way that he had done him. And then he begins to realize why he was shut out of his home, why he was with a blank and uncertain future ahead of him, and why he had a vengeful brother that was behind him. But now his trust was no longer on himself. He trusted in the promises of El Shaddai, the Almighty God. He trusted in the promises of El Shaddai who gave him the promises of Abraham. He said, you are going to have descendants that you can't count. And he began to realize the importance of that birthright and blessing that was given to him that God had prophesied years previous when he said the elder will serve the younger so he moved now here in verse 1 he moves on for the next 400 plus miles with happy feet how many of you saw that movie happy feet all right, I, I wasn't, I wasn't all that cool with the, the, you know, the politics about it. But, but you know, but that's, it. that's exactly what he had. He had happy feet. He moved with a spring in his step. He moved, taking every step, knowing that he had a purpose in serving the Lord. And he had a purpose in eternity, for all of eternity, for all peoples, Jew and Gentile. Though he wasn't thinking about it in those terms. But realize this, through him, the Messiah would come. The promise was given. And he moves with this, with, with, with this new purpose. With this new significance in his life. And all because of El Shaddai. El Shaddai. Who said, I will be with you. So it is El Shaddai. It is the Almighty God who gives us first and foremost power for our walk. After you came to know Jesus Christ, listen, you don't walk in your own power now. You walk in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You walk in the power of His Holy Spirit. You walk in the power of the Word of God. You walk in the power of El Shaddai. And then secondly, you walk with perseverance. He gives us perseverance in our walk. He gives us the strength to go through the struggles and the trials. You think it was an easy walk for 400 miles through desert? With trials and with troubles and with all kinds of unexpected things that could have, could have happened. But he persevered because of the next one. Because of the presence of El Shaddai. He is with us in the place of the walk. And if you'll notice the rest of verse 1, if you go back to verse 1. It says, He came to the land of the people of the East. He came. He got there. Why do you think he got there? 
because El Shaddai said, I'll be with you. Is he not with us today? Okay, he's with half of you anyway. Well, it's good for us to understand that God's work of providence are his, his most holy and wise and powerful works. Preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. We need to deal not only with the, the power of Al Shaddai, but also with the providence of Al Shaddai. Now, sometimes we may say, we, well, I haven't seen that word providence, but it is, a, it is a, a, an issue or a doctrine of theology, the providence of God. It's just a word that is used. Of course, if you notice within the word providence is the word provide or provider. So it is how God provides for all that he does for all of his people. And, and so God's providence relates to his care and protection of his people by his wisdom, his foresight, and his judiciousness. And we see that in places like in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where it says that God, who at various times and in various ways, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, and if you'll notice in verse 3, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. You all see that verse? It's underlined. You will see it? You know what it means? It's the providence of God. It's the providential hand of God. That it is the Lord himself who upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, he's in control. He's in control. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which means Jesus. That's his hand. If you look throughout the Old Testament, you see the right arm or the right hand of the Lord, the arm of the Lord. You know who that is? That's Jesus. You do a study of the hand or the arm of the Lord, it's Jesus. And so here in the New Testament, it makes it clear who it is. Uh, Paul in Colossians chapter 1, when he speaks of Jesus as, as, as actually being the creator of that, he says, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. In other words, all things are held together by Jesus. All things are held together by the hand of providence, the hand of God's providence, the hand of his providential care. But we see it most clearly in the Old Testament in Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, where in this one verse a part of a, a, the great prayer of dedication that was given at the time of the, of the walls of Jerusalem being built up. It says, You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything in it, or on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. Do you see that? That's God's providence. That's God's care and God's protection. You preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. We should not worship a God who doesn't have all things under control. We have a God that has all things in control. Therefore, we should worship Him in spirit and in truth. And His name is El Shaddai. And His power is given to us for our walk, to preserve us in our walk, and to let us know that He's always with us in the very place where we are. In other words, we can't escape Him. Aren't you thankful for that? I know sometimes you want to escape Him, but you can't, so don't worry about it. 
It's not going to happen. This next portion of the passage where we're going to deal with has to do with his providence at the well. And so we start to see how all of these things are defined for us with the incidents at the well. So let's go there. Verse 2 and 3, it says, And he looked and he saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. The stone was there, you know, certainly you know, protected from the elements and from other stuff getting into it, or, you know, so there wouldn't be too much dirt or stuff, you know, put into it. And now, in verse 3, all the flocks would be gathered uh, there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and then put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. Now, we need to understand something about providence. The providence of God is not a one-way street. The providence of God is not a one-way street. It requires human responsibility to benefit from it. In other words, the Lord worked wonderfully for Jacob here, but he had to take advantage of the opportunity which providence presented him, or it would have done him no good. In other words, Jacob had to go to the well. Now the good thing is that we know that he has this new relationship with God, and God is leading him, and, and, and I'm sure God is in conversation with him because of prayer, and, 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 and all, and this is all implied here, of course, but nonetheless, he couldn't just sit idly by, he had to act upon what God had provided for him. So Jacob had to go to the well and inquire about Laban, or the opportunity would have been of no avail. What the scripture tells me here is that Jacob had his purpose set so strongly in his heart, he was going to do no less than ask about Laban when he found somebody that he could talk to. So what we need to understand about providence is that it is not given to us to make us lazy or apathetic. Because there are a lot of people that think, well, you know, God's going to work everything out and I'm just going to have to sit by and just watch it all happen. Watch it all fall into place. Right? That's not how it works. He gives us the opportunity. He shows His hand in everything. We're seeing His hand in this, in this particular chapter. And Jacob acted upon it. You see, we have to act upon God's providence. That's the point. In other words, we need to invest in the stewardship of providence. We need to invest in the management of providence. That when we see that things are happening, they don't happen by accident. They don't happen by happenstance. They don't happen, you know, by coincidence. The world acts on coincidence. Oh, you know, something happens. Oh, how, what a coincidence that is. Oh, there's no coincidences with God. If we truly trust Him, wherever we are, we need to say, Lord, what's happening here? There's a reason. You know what, what one thing we miss as believers in Jesus Christ, the one thing we miss doing more than anything else is that many times God puts somebody in our way and we have this, nerd, this urge kind of to speak to them and then we say, well, maybe not today. Happens. Some of you are going... Yeah. And the Lord said, gave you an opportunity. Then there are other times you really are excited to do it, and then God kind of closes the door because something else has to happen. 
What does that involve? It involves us having discernment. But we don't practice these things if we're not in God's Word, if we're not in fellowship with Him, if we're not in communion with Him, if we're not waiting upon Him, if we're, if we're not in prayer. You see, you see all the, the, you know, the little intricacies of providence, how they can help us if we will be open to what God is leading us to do? It costs us an investment of stewardship or management of providence. Being aware that things just don't happen. Everything happens for a reason. Just read Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Now let's look at this well seen here. The shepherds who knew Laban were there by God's providence. The time of Rachel's arrival at the well was God's providence. Look at verse 4. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. All right. Cool. This is exciting. That's where I'm going. These are the people I need to talk to. Thanks, Lord. That's not in the text, but I kind of put it in there. Because, because you know, that's, that's, that's the exciting thing about when God puts something out in front of you. You're like, whoa, it's the Lord, isn't it? Now, why do we say that about some things and about other things we don't? But he did. You know, in essence, he says, we're from Haran. So we, but he's got another question to ask. Then, then he said to them, do you know Laban, the, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. So he said to them in verse 6, is he well? Now this was critical. This was a critical question. You know why? Because what, what that question translates to is, is he still alive? I mean, let's face it. He's lived 500 miles away from him. There are no communications like texting and phones and, and you know, whatever else. Uh, no Greyhound buses to go and visit whenever you want to. None of that's going on over here. Laban, who is his uncle, his mother's brother, which is uh, Rebecca, you know, is his mother. And, and, and they, they're brothers. And, and they haven't seen each other in almost 80 years. So he has to say, is he well? In other words, is he Alive? And they said to him, Yeah, he's well. And look, he says, his daughter Rachel is coming with a sheep. Oh, what a coincidence. Really? Or is this not God's providence? But then, Jacob, in kind of a elderly, fatherly sense, he says to these shepherds, he says, look, it's still high day. It's, it's not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and, and feed them. I really think he wants to get rid of them so he can be with Rachel alone. Keep that in mind. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Uh, then we water the sheep. All right, let's, let's go back a little bit. Let's put some things into perspective uh, regards, in regards to Jacob. When Jacob left Beersheba for Haran, he was 77 years old. 
So, you know, he's not a, he's not a young guy. I, I think we're okay here. I don't think we have too many in the 77 category here. You don't have to. If you, if you are, you know, praise the Lord. We love you because God has given you something, to, uh, something of life to teach us a, a lot more about. But, but here's the thing. He was 77 years old. And Jacob would spend 20 years serving his uncle Laban. So think about this. We're going forward a little bit. He's going to serve his uncle Laban for 20 years. He's then 33 years back in the land of Canaan, making him a whole lot older. And then he spent the remainder of his life in Egypt for 17 years. So Jacob lived 147 years. And as we shall see, his life was so significant and so important in the Lord bringing together the nation of Israel. Remember, Jacob will go through a name change later. His name will be changed from heel catcher, conniver, deceiver to Israel or Israel. The prince with God. So this makes his conversion all the more special in that it doesn't matter how old a person may be. Being converted and beginning a new life of commitment to the Lord should cause us to search for our new family, the family of God. He was searching for his family in Mesopotamia. He was searching for that family that was set apart from all the other families because of Abraham and because of Isaac, who had settled upon the fact that there was only one true God, and that God was the God of Abraham, who had become the friend of God. And so he was sent to that household to find a wife, because they would still be under the understanding that there was only one true God. He searched for his new family. And we need to to diligently search for our family too. We've already done that. Here we are. This is part of the family of God. And I have to tell you, you're my family. You are my family. And I hope I'm your family. And in saying that, I want to tell you how much I need you as my family. I hope that you need me too. But look around, you need each other. You need each other. You're not looking around, I I told you, look around. You need each other. Yeah, you got, come on, look. God made us so wonderfully. We can do this. We are family, folks. Because we love Jesus Christ. Because He is our elder brother. And we're joint heirs with Him. We need to diligently search amongst ourselves. We need each other for fellowship. We need each other for help. We need each other for encouragement. I need you for those things as much as you may need me. Never, never forget that. We need each other to, to study God's Word together and then we need to serve together and we need to witness together the love of Christ to others. It burdens my heart. There's so many people that today, they, they say, no, I, I don't go to church. I, I worship God my own way. They're not really worshiping. They're just worshiping themselves. 
Or they say, oh, I don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites in the church. Hey, look, one more is not going to hurt. Come on in. The qualification, though, is that we're sinners. We're all sinners. We all have fallen short of the glory of God, but praise God that Jesus found us and saved us. And we are new people. We're new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And we hold nothing against others. Except to love one another. I owe no thing to any man, Paul said, except to love him in Christ. We get a chance to love each other in the Lord each and every week. We get a chance to look around and meet somebody new every week. If you want to, you'll be blessed. If you don't want to, yeah. But here's the thing. Here's the rub, as they say. And I say this a lot in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. It says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's how I consider you. What I do up here is I take this big, this big spoon and I stir up the pot. You know? I'm trying to stir you all up to love and good works. That's part of my responsibility here. But it isn't only my responsibility. You need to stir in me love and good works. We need to stir each other, encourage each other, while we see the day of Christ approaching. Because in the next verse it says, not forsaking, our, uh, our, uh, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The day of Christ is coming. The day when He's going to take us home. We need to be encouraging each other about how we are to love and serve Christ. It's not beneficial. What good is it for, you know, for somebody to say, I don't, I don't need the church. There's me and the Lord, man. Yeah, but what are you doing for the Lord? Are you doing half of what the Word of God says? Are you doing even one quarter of what the Word of God says? Because if you don't do it with somebody else, then you're not being obedient to the Lord. And being the fact that Jesus can come at any moment, we, we are just not busy doing what God has called us to do. We need to start. For some of us, we need to start getting over some of these things. Oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. You know what? Why don't you just love Jesus and love each other? Because if you get over some of those things that are kind of keeping you from you know, doing things, you know, you're, you're going to realize God will bless you. God wants to bless you. Have you forgotten him? God wants to bless you. <clears throat> well, let's get back to our text because I'm way behind schedule. You don't mind, huh? The brisket will wait. There was this interesting meeting between Jacob and the shepherds after Rachel came into view. Jacob tried to get the shepherds to water the flocks and be on their way so that he could be alone with Rachel. They wanted to stay and they wanted to eavesdrop. Sometimes I think that people think that that's a gift in the church, you know, to eavesdrop into other people's business. I really do. I think some people think it's a gift, you know. I have the gift of eavesdropping. Because then there's others who say they have the gift of gossip, you know, I I don't know. No, those aren't gifts. Those are things that God doesn't like. So let's not do them. 
But nonetheless, they, you know, they wanted to stay and just kind of see what was going on. But, but both Jacob and the shepherds, they had good arguments, you know, for their discussion. Jacob argued that the shepherds were wasting valuable pasture time by sitting around the well doing nothing. And being somebody who maybe he wasn't out with, with Isaac all the time as Esau was. But he understood the workings of a farm ranch situation that they had where they were uh, over in Beersheba. But the shepherds were arguing that it was more efficient to water all the flocks together and they needed uh, cooperation to remove the heavy stone from the well. Well, it's interesting that the shepherds actually won the argument and they stayed, but they lost their place in line. They lost their place in line because Jacob rolled the stone away for Rachel. I'll move the stone for you, Rachel. 77 years old, man, and he thinks he's Charles Atlas. And he moves that stone out of the way. And he did it, too. Better watch out for those 77-year-olds that are here today. They'll get you. Let's look at verse 9. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when... Here's that long verse, by the way. Uh, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother. Notice how many times that's, that's mentioned. Uh, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. That Jacob went near and rolled a stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. It seems to me that uh, Moses really wanted us to realize that Jacob's mother's brother was going to play a major role in his life later. We would hope it was good, but it's not all good. But it's still in the providence of God, and we'll see how that all pans out later. But then something happens in verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice, and he wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son, so she ran and told her father. Now go back a little bit and realize that it wasn't wasn't usual for young women to keep the flock of families, but in some cases it was necessary. Rachel's work as a shepherdess reveals that she was an industrious woman, which speaks well of her character. She wasn't a lazy person. She wasn't a lazy girl. She knew how to work and she was willing to work. That's a good thing. I'm sure that's something that that, uh, Jacob remembered. And as for Jacob, he was just nearly beside himself as he looked upon his future wife. And certainly something was aroused in him in, in that he not only rolled away the stone single-handedly from the well, but for some reason he was reminded of his uncle and future father-in-law. So much so that he's mentioned in verse 10 three times as his mother's brother. Well, we'll see how that affects him later. But Rachel's beauty and her demeanor inspired Jacob to immediately take upon himself the duty of watering her flock. Now, I have to tell you, there's nothing wrong with men being inspired to noble deeds for and by some sweet, nice, pretty girl. And it often, it often gets me because, you know, we're, we're so nice when we're starting to date someone. Guys are, okay, guys? I'm trying to be nice here to you, but, you know, we, we all we just love, you know, we, do, we, we want to take them out and open the door for them and... And, and, you know, escort them walking inside when you're walking on the street. You don't want them to, by the, by the, you know, by the curb. So you walk them inside and then you open every door for them. You do all of these things till you get married. And then what happens? Get your own door, woman. 
Is that good? Is that right? No. What happened? So it's a noble thing, isn't it? It's a noble thing. Nothing wrong with that. But let me tell you, it is a shame that professing Christians cannot be likewise inspired to noble service for and by Jesus Christ. That bothers me. Because many professing Christians are so slack and indifferent in serving Jesus Christ that they have to be bribed, so to speak, with some cheap gimmick to attend church and to perform some service for the cause of Christ. There were some churches years, a few years ago that, that got people to go to church by just saying, we're going to give you free gas if you come to church. Whatever happened to come to church and worship the Lord who created you and has provided everything that you need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. What has happened to that kind of service, that kind of desire in a person's heart to say, you know what, God gave it all for me, I need to give my all for Him. Whatever happened to that? Where is that gone? And it's made us these, these consumer shoppers of, you know, well, I like this church for that, and I like this for this, and I like this for that. You know, hey, we're all flawed. Bottom line, I'm flawed. I don't want you to follow me, I want you to follow Christ. Now, I'm going to do all I can to give you a good example to follow, but still, when it comes down to it, I want you to follow Jesus. Which means you've got to serve Him from your heart. Paul said in, in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Do you know what the word beseech means? I mean, it is one of those words that says, hey, I'm begging you. Why do preachers and even apostles have to beg the church? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's not over and above. That's just the reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be transformed. Jacob was transformed at Bethel. Wherever it was that you met Jesus Christ, you were transformed. We have to ask, what has happened since? Well, let's get back to Jacob because of time, because we've got to come to the communion table and all. There was that astonishing kiss, verse 11, right? And then the burst of tears. It's not told us, but we have to think, you know, that that kiss was really just the common kiss of a relative to a relative. But Rachel hadn't been introduced to Jacob yet. He just went right straight to the kiss. And then he just lifted his voice and he wept. While we're not told exactly what that was about, it, it, it kind of gives us a sense that he said, Lord, oh, you are sovereign. You are mighty. And you are faithful to your word. This is the one you brought me here for. As I said, it was a custom that day for the, in that day for family members to greet one another with a kiss. And as I said, Jacob hadn't identified himself. He was still a stranger. She didn't know him as a family member, and yet he walked over, he kissed her, and probably realizing what he had not done, he finally identifies himself as a relative of her father and Rebecca's son. 
So you kind of get this impression that when Jacob saw Rachel, it was love at first sight. And we certainly see the hand of God, the providential hand of Almighty God, the providential hand of El Shaddai. You know that in the life of a trusting believer in Jesus Christ, as I said before, there are no accidents, there are only appointments. This was Jacob's appointment with Rachel. And soon, an appointment with Laban, his mother's brother. And as soon as Jacob identifies himself to Rachel, she runs and tells her father, Laban. And here we'll close with verses 13 and 14. Then it came to pass, when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. That's a little, deceive, a little deceiving because he stayed with him for a month as a guest, but he was going to be there for 20 years. Anyway, Laban rushed out to meet Jacob. He embraced him and he kissed him repeatedly. And I believe it was very sincere that Laban came out and you just kind of kissed him, you know. I mean, I'm sure that I, uh, Jacob only kissed Rachel once and, you know, all the shepherds, ooh, mira, you know, they got all excited. But, uh, but here's Laban coming over here and probably kissing all of his face. Now, oh, my, it's, my, it's my sister's son, you know. I'm, I'm sure it was very sincere. His sister Rebecca had left home and, and he hadn't seen her in some 80 years. That's a long time. So eventually Jacob had to share and tell why he was there and he needed to do some explaining in order for Laban to, to ascertain with certainty that Jacob was who he was and who he said he was. And furthermore, Jacob had much information to relate to Laban, which obviously included his pursuit of a wife, as later text will confirm. But Laban's statement, surely you are my bone and my flesh, uh, gives indication of two things. It gives indication that Jacob had satisfactorily proved his identity to Laban, and also that Laban was, to some extent, adopting Jacob into his own family. So that's significant. We'll, we'll deal with that a little bit more later. Now we're told that Jacob stayed with Laban as a guest for a month, and he would stay at least 20 years longer than a month, but this month is the time that he stayed as a guest before he hired on to work for Laban and became a, a permanent lodger. But the important thing for us to remember is that the Lord had opened doors for Jacob and provided for him just as he had promised. That's what we need to see here. God's power and God's providence. The power to get Jacob there, the, per, the persevering the, in his walk, the presence of the Lord with him all the way through, and then the providential things that happen, all of that being the Lord. So here, before we come to the table of communion, I have to ask you these questions in a moment, but I want you to think of the excitement of a new believer. Think of the excitement of a new believer, of a repentant sinner who is now a repentant believer who makes a new commitment to the Lord. Think about that person for just a moment because some of us were that person a long time ago and maybe not so long ago. But here's the questions. How many churches welcome that new believer as excitedly as Laban welcomed Jacob? Ever thought about that? 
That when a person comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm always, always excited when somebody comes up and says, this is my cousin or this is my, my sister or this is my friend or my neighbor. And they've just prayed to receive Jesus Christ. They're excited. And, and I get excited. I, you know, I'm not going to kiss them like Laban kissed Jacob, you know. But, no, 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 no. No, but, but I, well, I could, but I, you know, don't want to embarrass myself. But, but the important thing is I get excited because here is a new believer in Christ. The, the doors of heaven have been opened for one more convert to Christ. Isn't that wonderful? The Bible says the angels rejoice when a sinner comes to the Lord. The angels rejoice. We should rejoice. But are we? How many believers open their hearts and their homes to those who have sinned but have repented and have changed their lives? How many of us have opened our homes and said, Come, let's fellowship. Let's talk about Jesus. How many repentant believers are welcome when they are trying to be restored back into the church and family of God? Some of, some of us have left. We understand this. Some of us have left the Lord and then we humbly get brought back to the Lord and we're just kind of, we're just kind of shy, man. We just don't want to get through that door uh, because we, we're just ashamed of what we've done. And yet the Lord says, don't be ashamed. I took your shame for you on the cross. You come. But we need to welcome them. You see, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul told his brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you see that any trespass? We, 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 that we do not have the right to qualify whether a trespass is good enough for us or not to welcome back. Or one's worse enough to say no. If any man overtaken in any trespass, brethren, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens and fulfill, so fulfill the law of Christ. We can fail too. We have to consider that we ourselves can fail. And we can fail big. And we can fail hard. But if the Lord has has restored us spiritually and there's somebody to be restored, can we restore them? Question, can we restore them? Can we restore them? Should we restore them? Will you restore them? Ah, that one didn't sound so good. Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. I have to ask you this question. How many of you were bitter this week about something? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. But how many of you were bitter? You were really bitter about something. You didn't take it to the Lord. You just got bitter. And guess what? Your heart got bitter too. Or you got angry. And you shared your wrath with people. Instead of sharing something else. And you were clamoring, murmuring, complaining. Maybe you were evil speaking. You were saying words that you wouldn't say in this room, would you? You ever been there? Your vocabulary has expanded. And Paul says, put away those things. Put them away. In other words, bury them to their death. Then he says, be kind to one another. Has there been an experience this week where you were not kind to someone when you should have been, but you judged rather harshly be kind to one another 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I, I don't like it when I hear Christians say, I can forgive this and I can forgive that, but I cannot forgive this. Jesus did. He forgave you. You see, we're going to come to the table of communion. I'm going to encourage you all to take communion today. And if you don't know Jesus, you get to know him right now so that you can take it with a better understanding of what it all means. But the point is, who takes it? Communion but sinners. We're all sinners. And we've all been forgiven if we've come to Christ. So can you forgive? The last thing I want to share is Acts 20, verse 35, where it says, where Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders as he's getting ready to depart Ephesus and to leave for uh, Jerusalem, and he says to them in this one verse, he says, I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What was the lesson that Jacob had learned? He had been a, he had been a getter, but now he was a giver. He had been a taker, but now he was giving. Can we give love? Can we give mercy? Can we give grace? Can we give forgiveness? This communion will challenge our hearts today. But we need to be challenged. And is there a way for us to overcome the problems that we have? Yes. The power and the providence of God. Will you trust Him? Will you believe Him? Will you call upon Him? Will you say yes to Jesus today? And live for Him? And, and take steps of faith outside of the shell that you put yourself in sometimes. Will you? Take the cup. Take the bread. And remember what Jesus did for us. To leave this place today with a spring in our step and a song in our heart. I want you all to leave that way. Amen? Father, thank you so much for bringing us to this time now to come to your word and to be refreshed, restored, and renewed in our commitment to Jesus Christ. Father, we are in need of your grace today so that what we do with this bread and this cup will truly encourage our hearts to do what is right before you, to do what is good for our brothers and sisters in Christ, what is good for those who are yet without Christ and yet to love them into your kingdom and what we can do, Lord God, as we see the day of Christ approach. Father, help us, help us, help us, O oh God, to realize that there are things that we need to do to see you work a great work in us. And we humble ourselves before you now in Jesus' name to receive this bread and this cup so that you will be honored and glorified by everything said and done as we leave today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Twist the two cups. Uh, the bread is in the bottom cup. The juice is on the top. Just twist them very carefully. Don't spill any on you.
What a great song.